Top of the inning to you. Welcome to the Irish Baseball Podcast, brought to you by the Irish American Baseball Society. If you love baseball and if you love Ireland, stay tuned for a discussion of all things Irish baseball. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Becker. On the show today, we'll continue our conversation with artist Sean Kane. Later in the episode, John Fitzgerald will get us updated on all of the happenings with the Irish American Baseball Society and the Baseball United Foundation. Of course, the Irish Baseball Podcast is a production of the Irish American Baseball Society, and all guests on the podcast will receive a one-year membership in the organization. To become a member yourself, visit irishbaseball.org. Right now, let's welcome back our guest from episode 26, artist Sean Kane. In the first part of our talk, Sean shared his unique work of painting baseball gloves with legendary players. He mentioned the fact that he grew up a Cubs fan, that he's learned a lot about the Phillies organization through his commissioned artwork, and that he is a huge fan of Ichiro Suzuki. Sean, I was wondering if you could get things going today by letting us into the creative process and what it takes to create these one-of-a-kind collectibles. The process from start to finish for creating a painted glove is typically in the 120 to 150-hour range and includes all those items you mentioned from sourcing the glove to researching the player, what they look like, what they wore, who they played for, all their stats and awards, designing it custom to the glove that I find, and then creating a typeface and a a type treatment for their name that also speaks to the era that they're from is another research level and design element. And then finally, I get to get out the little tiny brushes and the paints and paint that. And that brings me up to the full, you know, the 120, 150 hour range. And it's usually spread out over a six to eight week period to kind of get all of that done. So the natural reaction would be to assume that it is harder to do these gloves if you're doing an old player like King Kelly. But is it maybe a little harder than people think if you pick a recent player like Jimmy Rollins or any recent player? Like if somebody asked you to do Derek Jeter, everybody knows exactly how Derek Jeter looks They know all of his big accomplishments. How do you create something special and unique when somebody knows these players so well? That's an excellent question to to consider. I really work hard to find images of players that have not been used on book covers and baseball cards and paraphernalia or other memorabilia things that you won't find when you type their name into eBay. I'll dig so deep into Getty images or other photo libraries to find something different. I really want to base my portrait on a unique look of that player. So aside from that, then with involving the glove element to bring another level of hopefully some something new to the table for that collector or that, that fan who's seen everything is then, you know, to partner with the glove manufacturer. Sometimes I can get, I've worked with Rawlings and some of the other glove companies to get a gold glove for a Cal Ripken painting or like their exact model for several of these players that I've mentioned already. So then it's like, 
this is like an authentic glove, a photo we've never seen. And then maybe don't tell the whole story. Like sometimes simple is more, less is more where don't have every single uh, accolade and stat, maybe just their name. And maybe then in a generation from now, someone walking by that painting is going to be like, who's Derek Jeter? They'll have to do the work. They'll have to do the hard work and get on the computer, open a book and see all the things that he won because I'm not going to list them all on there. There's too many. It would clutter it up. And sometimes just that glove as a frame around their their image is enough. You mentioned a few times during this conversation that you're a fan of Ichiro. And I could think of doing an Ichiro glove. And obviously everybody knows that Ichiro was this incredible hitter and one of the best pure hitters to ever play the game. But when I think about Ichiro, what impressed me the most was his cannon of an arm in right field. So do you ever go into a glove and think, I don't know if people really appreciate Ichiro the right fielder, or people talk about Cal Ripken and the game streak, but I don't think they appreciate how he was this new era of shortstop who was big and could hit for power. Do you ever try to tell a different story than people might be getting every time they look into that player? Yeah, there is that challenge to tell a different story. And I think that can be one of the limitations of restricting myself to the glove as kind of my creative sandbox. And I'm not sure that I've, uh, maybe I haven't accomplished that yet, but that's that's a challenge for me to uh, to take on. You know, I've been stretched by clients and collectors because of that very question to think about, well, what else could I depict this person on? So, for instance, I was hired by the Phillies to create something for Jim Tomei's retirement party slash Hall of Fame celebration. And a glove wasn't going to be something that was going to recognize his talents. We ended up settling on a base. I painted a portrait of him on one of the bases that was on the field when he hit his last home run as a Philly. You know, so actually I had to kind of jump beyond the gloves because I have to embrace that there's some limitations and I'll have to work to uh, to try to tell those those stories. For sure. So what was it like to be given this base to create this incredible piece of artwork? And it is really a part of history. Jim Tomey is probably one of the most underrated hitters of all time. And like you said, as somebody who worked in radio in Pennsylvania, I can definitely say doing a glove for Jim Tomey would not have, <laughs> would not have uh, paid him the right due respect. So having this base and just looking at it and thinking about how your talents have translated into you being shipped something like this to create your artwork, that must have been an emotional moment. It was incredibly emotional, and it arrived on opening day of the season. I think it was 2018 or 2017 that I was shipped this base from the equipment manager at the Phillies, and in conversation with my client in the front office there, I said, you know, what if we did it on home plate or a base? They actually have these items in stock. So so they sent me a base with an authentication sticker on it, and it arrived in this box. I was just blown away. It has the Phillies uh, logo on the sides of the base. And it's kind of like when collectors send me a glove, an heirloom glove from their family, and they want me to paint their 
favorite player on a glove that their grandpa gave them kind of paralyzed for a bit. And I was with this Phillies base and then realizing I, I typed in the sort of the code that came on the, the little hologram to see when was this base on the field, who threw the pitch and all of this stuff. Plus it was a lot bigger than a glove. So I, I actually realized, wow, I bit off a lot more than I could, <laughs> than I could chew here. It's going to be bigger. It's got little pebbles on it that I had to sand off. And I was really tentative because I hadn't painted on this type of material before. So I had to test paints to make sure that they wouldn't rub off and get the right kind of primer. So it pushed me as an artist to create on a different material. And also, yeah, I was in awe that I was given this item. And then to see it presented to him on the field uh, with his family there. And he and I were about the same age and we grew up just a couple of hours from each other across the state in Illinois. So I felt like a real kind of kinship to be a part of this celebration and, uh, you know, quite honored as well. Where can somebody listening to this podcast go and see a picture of Tommy with your base? Uh, that would be on my website, seancanebaseballart.com. And if they click on the blog link, there's a search box there they can type in Tome, T-H-O-M-E, of course, and uh, it should pop up that way or a Google search for Sean Kane, Jim Tome art. One of my favorite things when I'm talking to an artist, because I find the process so interesting, is just hearing about the start to finish work that goes into creating a great piece of art. And you have a very interesting experience where the subject matter of that art eventually got to see it and you were dealing with a completely new medium so having somebody know the background of all the different challenges that you faced in creating this piece and then knowing that the subject was going to see it at the end I think that's something that's going to interest a lot of our listeners especially if they have that same intuitiveness to try to understand the mind of somebody creating art? For me, there's a thinking process. There's a, a level of concentration that I try to reach when I'm working on a piece where I need to keep those elements in mind, like, hey, the recipient of this painting has been looking at themselves in the mirror for 50 years. They're going to know if this isn't what they look like. So the pressure's on when the recipient is the person depicted on the glove. And, and there's been, I've been, blessed to have a lot of opportunities already for this to happen with players receiving my artwork with themselves depicted on it. So, but I, I need to reach a level where I can push those uh, thoughts and those voices in my head, kind of push them aside and dig into getting the depiction and the feeling and the emotion of what they look like um, to really get that right and to push away because all those other thoughts can really impede my progress and um, can kind of get in the way in the creation process and kind of forget about the fact that, uh, oh, this I'm doing this for a uh, major league team or it's going to be seen by a lot of people and just enjoy the process and think about how meaningful this could be for this person to have this on display in their home. And then I start to get all the warm, fuzzy feelings of, I'm doing this for a purpose and it's a meaningful thing. And then I can kind of forget about the names and the clubs involved. I can think in my own personal fandom that I have a lot of players that I've followed 
and have meant something to me that are Hall of Famers. My favorite player of all time is Wade Boggs. I was a huge Manny Ramirez fan when he was playing. But there are also those players who connect to your fandom who don't have merchandise available at every baseball card store. You can't just go on eBay and find 10,000 search results for that player. Have you found people are asking you to find some of these players who are almost obscure because they meant something to them? Maybe they met this player who had a cup of coffee, but that cup of coffee was important to that person. Or maybe they didn't even make the bigs. Maybe they were in the minors and they just had this great experience with the player. Because I know as I went through, there are just as many of those players that influence my love of the game as there are Hall of Famers. That has come up a few times. Admittedly, though, it's kind of like the all-stars, the big names. But there have been some players that one that comes to mind is a collector who's become a friend She's a big fan of, well, you'll know this as someone from Philly area, of Don Money. Don Money was a third baseman for the Phillies, I believe, and for the Milwaukee Brewers. Not a huge name, but he was an all-star, and he had a string of errorless games uh, playing third. Not a name that most people would naturally go and find and collect. So I painted a, a painting on a mini glove of him for her. And he's he was in a he was a coach for a Nashville minor league team, and that's how she wanted him depicted because that's what he was wearing when she met him. So it's like this very far removed from his heyday nineteen early seventies look on the field. It's more of like the middle age version of this player when this fan crossed paths with him. So those are fun opportunities because they they actually feel a little bit more intimate and like very personal and it's just satisfying to uh, to be able to create something that's meaningful for her to uh, to remember that that friendship she's got sean kane thank you so much for being on the show this has been one of my favorite interviews sean kane baseballart.com s-e-a-n and at painted gloves on all your favorite social media platforms thank you so much for being here mr kane rick it's my pleasure thanks for uh, having me on the show and introducing my work to the listeners all guests on the irish baseball podcast receive a one-year membership into the irish american baseball society for more about the organization or to become a member yourself visit irishbaseball.org I'm Rick Becker, and it's time to welcome the founder of the Irish American Baseball Society and the Baseball United Foundation, John Fitzgerald. Thanks for coming back on the show, John. Hey, Rick. Great to be on again. So since we are still early in the new year, 2022, we thought it would be good to sort of go over some of the things happening with the Irish American Baseball Society and the Baseball United Foundation. So why don't you give us a little update on what's happening? Yeah, so um, with the Irish American Baseball Society, I think what 2022 is going to be all about is really just um, kind of bringing our members together. We're going to be doing a lot of committee work uh, via Zoom calls. I mean, we've got members across the country, so we want to make sure that everybody gets to meet each other. We've got a number of committees that are going to really do the work of the society. You know, the members of the committee will be members of the society. And so we're going to have people in California working with people in New York and Florida and everywhere in between. You know, we've got a strong contingent in Kansas City, and I hope they're listening. Uh, and, you know, we, we've got you know people in Texas. We've got people all over the place. So 
we're going to use, you know, Zoom and social media to continue to bring these fans together. And we're also going to be uh, putting together some in-person events so that people in their own communities can share what we do and, and share the game of baseball with each other, you know, through um, events. We're going to try to get some speakers in, some signing events and that sort of thing. So really just continuing what we do, which is celebrate the game of baseball through the lens of um, Irish Americans and celebrate the Irish American impact. For the Baseball United Foundation, which is the parent company or the parent nonprofit of the Irish American Baseball Society, we are doing a lot of stuff all across the world. But the main focus of what we do is really in Ireland. We've been working in Ireland for 15 years, more than 15 now. You know, one of the things we're really excited about is our baseball in Ireland program. And we started this in 2021. You know, th this was our first program where we really um, implemented a curriculum to teach kids baseball. It started in Northern Ireland. And we, we basically started up in April by bringing baseball to schools. And so we were teaching baseball to kids in schools. And then it, it continued on in the summer at summer camps. And then it concluded during the fall uh, semester. But we brought the game of baseball to 1,700 kids. So we're just really excited about that. We had no idea when we started it, it would take off like it did. And um, we're, we're just really excited about how well the game was received by boys and girls who had very little exposure or knowledge to the game prior to our program. What fascinates me about this project is how do you even go about putting together a curriculum for teaching baseball to people who don't know it because we're so used to it being ingrained in American society. So a lot of these terms, we don't even think of people not knowing them. That's a really good question. And the, the, the way the curriculum, I developed the curriculum myself and the way I did it was first thing was from talking to coaches that we had sent to Ireland in years past. So if we knew that there was a baseball camp or a new baseball team in Ireland, we would sometimes be able to send a coach over. And when we did, the coach would come back and, and we would discuss, you know, what works, what doesn't work, what do the kids understand, what do they need help with, and what are they strong in? Irish kids are usually pretty strong with hitting a, a baseball. And that's partially due to their experience with hurling. But that was 10 years in the making, just kind of having these conversations with you know, baseball guys that know the game. And in recent years, I've spoken a lot to people with the Irish softball community, and it's uh, very similar. Irish kids tend to have problems throwing the baseball. But what really kick-started the, the curriculum for this program was taking that information, and I coached my son's uh, t-ball team two years ago. As a guy who played baseball in high school, I played for a year in college, I was shocked by how many four, five, and six-year-olds in America did not have a basic understanding of the game. And I'm not talking about, you know, being able to hit a baseball or anything like that. I'm talking about just knowing what the bases were called or which way to run the bases. I'm not disparaging these kids. These were great kids and, and they wanted to learn, but they're not exposed to the game like we were as kids. They don't watch baseball on TV. And if they do, they're watching home runs on Sports Center. They're not sitting down and watching the game. So they don't think anything of it if they hit the ball off of the tee and they run to third base. What I had to do was really just kind of like re-engineer how I was teaching the game to these kids and, and just understand that you have to assume that they have no knowledge of the game. And that's exactly what most kids in Ireland who are a little bit older, um, the kids we were teaching this past year were 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. 
but they have no experience with the game. And that doesn't mean they can't learn to play it and like it, just like the four, five, and six-year-olds in the US. You just have to show them exactly what to do and then show them why things are happening. Because if a kid knows he's running to first base, it's not as fun unless he knows that you know somebody's trying to tag him out or to throw the ball to first base to tag him out. That's really how you know it came about. It was once I saw my son's T-ball team on the first day of practice, I said, well, this is exactly like what we've been working with in Ireland. They're not 10 or 12 year old kids from Dublin that don't know the game. These are four five and six year olds from New York. So that's kind of, you know, how the curriculum started. And, and that curriculum, when we teach it in the U S we call it small ball. It's basically taking the game and we're not dumbing it down. We're, we're teaching the game and we're teaching it and emphasizing things like running and tagging and things that kids will understand. And when you break it down like that, what we found is kids really like it. That's really how the curriculum came about. And then as far as how we taught it due to COVID, we couldn't send a coach over, but we have a partner organization in Northern Ireland called Healthy Kids, and they teach a variety of sports in physical education programs. So it's kind of like outsourcing. These uh, coaches will go to different schools and they will basically run a physical education class. And so we worked out an arrangement where they will teach baseball. In order to do that, I had to train. Well, I shouldn't say I, I, I trained along with uh, several of my um, uh, other coaches in the U.S. that have used the small ball program. We worked together to train the coaches in Northern Ireland to give them an understanding. Now, some of them had seen baseball and played baseball growing up when they visited America, but you know they didn't have much baseball knowledge or experience to draw from but they're really good coaches and they're very well-versed in sports and fitness. And they can see these things that we're explaining to them and they understand, you know, why you teach running first and why hitting a baseball is not easy to do, but you don't want to dumb it down, put the ball on the tee because then the kid might not feel like he's accomplishing much. It's much easier to throw a larger ball, um, like maybe a you know, softball or something even larger than that. I, in, in the past, I've had kids hit beach balls just to get them in the habit of hitting a moving object with a bat. So we go through all this stuff on zoom and it worked out great. And, but we're really looking forward to being able to send coaches over to work with the coaches in Ireland and Northern Ireland. So besides the obvious of the pandemic, what have been some of the struggles in getting this project off the ground or is it running pretty smoothly? It's definitely running better than we thought it would in year one. We expected a lot of hiccups, but we had uh, a great partner over there and the coaches over there were just great. What we tried to do is instill a system where every week, so for example, this fall, the program expanded. In the spring, it was one school, one day a week. And that was just to kind of get our feet wet and see what was working. By the time we got to the fall, we were a different school every day of the week. So we were doing five days a week. But at the end of each week, no matter which schools we were in or how many kids we were working with, the coach in Northern Ireland was basically filling out a form to just explain what worked and what didn't. Really, the biggest hurdle we had was equipment. First, it was tees getting broken. And we found a supplier in London to be able to send new tees over and it got there pretty quick, which was great. And then towards the end, we actually had balls getting like just disappearing. Like we had a ball get hit into a tree. We use primarily wiffle balls, but we also use, um, we actually used the game of kickball as a way to reinforce base running and, and the, the dynamics of the game as far as tagging and the competitive aspects of it. So if we feel the kids are 
you know, maybe they hit off a tee or, they, or they've been working on fielding a little bit too much. We take out the kickball and we let them really just kick the ball and run around the bases a little bit. Kickballs started to get kicked over fences and, you know, teachers weren't able to retrieve them before the class went back in. It really just equipment was the main issue we had as far as conveying the game to the kids. The kids really got it. Some of the kids over there actually have exposure to the sport of rounders, which is, you know, the precursor to baseball. Any kid that has played or seen rounders being played would not have too much of a, a hard time understanding the basics of baseball. With that said, though, not every kid in um, Ireland or Northern Ireland has played rounders. You know, it's something you have to kind of keep in mind because you don't want half the class to be advancing where the other half is kind of like standing there wondering, you know, what am I supposed to be doing? Because that's a recipe for losing half the class. So our coaches have been cognizant of that and have been really, really great about making sure that the kids, they come along both in terms of understanding the gameplay, but also understanding the, the sports skills of hitting, throwing and fielding. So how can people who are listening today help out this program? If they want to learn more about the program and they're interested in being involved or making an impact, they could go to baseballunitedfoundation.org. We're you know, always updating the program there or on, on our social media sites, uh, which you can also find at baseballunitedfoundation.org. Thank you so much for being back on the show, John Fitzgerald. Hey, Rick. Thanks again for having me. For artist Sean Kane and founder of the Irish American Baseball Society, John Fitzgerald, I'm Rick Becker, and this has been episode 27 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Irish Baseball Podcast. The Irish Baseball Podcast is a production of the Irish American Baseball Society. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org and connect with us on social media. And remember, there's no place like home.